Well, we're nearing the end of a series that we've done this summer on the life of David, but really it's been the story of two men, one on the way up, that's David, and another on the way down, that's King Saul. From the first week, though, of the series, back in June, we've already known how it's going to end, that God has made a decision to choose David to replace Saul, although there is a time gap. Uh, In fact, it's been probably about 20 years. We don't know all the dates and times of everything that takes place in the story, but almost or at least maybe probably over 20 years since David first heard that he was going to be the one to replace Saul. Now, as the events have uh, transitioned, we come almost to the end. And next week, over the next couple of weeks, we'll see this transition of power. But before that takes place, the narrator tells us one very sad scene that takes place in the hours, spoiler alert, before Saul ends his reign as king. I want to begin the story by reading from 1 Samuel chapter 28, beginning in verse 3. If you'd like to follow along in one of the Pew Bibles, it's on page 420, page 420, 1 Samuel chapter 28. The words will also be on the screen. Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel mourned for him and buried him in his own town at Ramah. Saul had expelled the Medians and Spiritists from the land. Now what Saul had done here was to prohibit necromancy, that is, communicating with the dead. Maybe you've heard of seances or channeling. Uh, The purpose was to communicate with the dead to get secret information or to learn about the future, and Jewish law prohibited this in Deuteronomy 18. But the key issue here, according to Jewish tradition, was that seeking information from the dead was not seeking it from God. It was a source other than God, and it put you in danger of um, being involved in the dark world of the occult. And Saul knew this. So some years before, in a moment of spiritual and moral clarity, he had prohibited necromancy in the nation. And what he'd done is had anyone who practiced it deported from the country. But, as we'll see in a second, Saul lacked courage of his convictions. So what is the problem that leads him to make this moral compromise? Well, the Philistines, who were Israel's enemy at the time, had camped out. Their army had made their way to a broad valley in the middle of the country, and they were there in order to attack the Israelites. The Israelites knew this, and it says in verse 5 that when Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. Now, he had faced the Philistines before. The nation had actually defeated them a number of times, but Philistines were prepared to make their most powerful thrust into Israel in decades, and they had a battle strategy that was pretty significant. What they'd done is put themselves in a place where the battle could be fought on a broad plain, a flat plain, rather than in the mountains. And they had a technological superiority in that particular kind of battleground because the Philistines had these chariots that would allow them to more uh, more easily defeat the Israelites. If they won this battle and took this area, they would cut the nation in half, separating the top from the bottom. Saul Saul knew that he needed to do something to do it quickly, and if he didn't, um, there would be disaster. So in the midst of this, he wants advice. He wanted to know how things will turn out. So in verse 6, it says, he inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not um, answer him. Saul's lonely, he's isolated, he's shaking with fear. His judgment is clouded. He wants advice and encouragement. He wants some information about the future. So he does what he had done before, although not for a long time, and it says that he inquired of the Lord. But God doesn't listen. Three different ways he tries to ask God for input, but God's silent. 
If you go back in Saul's history, back to the beginning of when he was chosen to be king and when he became king of Israel, this was something he did often. He inquired of the Lord. But over time, he had abandoned that practice. He became more full of himself. And what he discovered now is that God would no longer listen to him. Saul made a mistake that we can make as well, and that is that he thought he could have God on his own terms. He could ignore God when it suited him. He could beckon him anytime he wanted. But now he discovered that was no longer so. And then he makes matters worse by violating his own decree and seeking advice from beyond the grave. Verse 7, Saul then said to his attendants, find me a woman who is a medium so that I may go and inquire her. There's one in Endor, they said. Again, this is significant. In the wake of God's silence, he decides to obey Jewish law, his own royal edict, to conduct a seance, if you will. And so it says in verse 8 that Saul disguised himself, putting on other clothes. And at night, he and two men went to the woman. Consult a spirit for me, he said, and bring up for me the one I name. But the woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done. He's cut off the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why have you set a trap for my life to bring about my death? By the way, the narrator doesn't tell us here whether it's possible even to communicate with the dead. The rest of the Bible is uh, ambiguous, but I think it leans in the direction of saying no. But in this case, God does allow a message to come from beyond the grave. We don't know exactly what this all means, but here's how the narrator describes this particular seance. Saul swore to her by the Lord, as surely as the Lord lives, you'll not be punished for this. Then the woman asked, whom shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel, he said. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried at the top of her voice and said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, don't be afraid. What do you see? The woman said, I see a ghostly figure coming up out of the earth. What does he look like, he asked. An old man wearing a robe is coming up, she said. Then Saul knew it was Samuel, and he bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I'm in great distress, Saul said. The Philistines are fighting against me, and the Lord has departed from me. He no longer answers me, either by prophets or dreams. So I've called on you to tell, you what to, do, to tell me what to do. Samuel said, why do you consult me now that the Lord has departed you and become your enemy? The Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David. Because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites. The Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. Now there's an irony here, and that is that Saul really didn't need more information. He already knew what he needed to do. He knew that the task ahead was to lead the troops of Israel into battle. But he wanted more. It looked like to him that his cause was hopeless, that he was facing disaster. And what he asked for really was reassurance that things would turn out okay. But instead, Samuel tells him to expect the worst. And when he hears all of this in verse 20, says, immediately Saul fell full length to the ground, filled with fear because of Samuel's words. His strength was gone, for he had eaten nothing all that day and night. And then the story tells about the kindness, interestingly, of this medium who provides Saul with a meal. It's his last meal. It's a much-needed meal and helps him revive his strength. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about this transition from Saul to David. 
But I want us, before we do that, um, to look at this cautionary tale and see what we can learn. Throughout the book of 1 Samuel, Saul has moved in and out of the story. He began well, but he had a stubborn streak. He obeyed God when it was convenient, but he would cut corners and freelance. He started humble, but he quickly learned that he liked the privileges of power, and along the way, he used his office to benefit himself, not to serve the people. With time, he grew reckless and self-absorbed. He was inconsistent. Sometimes he'd do what was right, and the next moment he would fail. His religious impulses were shallow. He often gave lip service to faith, spiritualizing things to sound good, even when his intentions were selfish or rebellious. He tried to manipulate God for his purposes. He didn't always pursue God for God's sake, but to get something from him that he wanted. He failed to realize that leaders must always remain submissive to a higher authority, to that of God above. And because of his pride, he became jealous of David and pursued an evil campaign to get rid of him. Eventually, God decided that Saul was not the, Israel, the leader Israel needed, and he needed to make a change. It's not clear why God waited 20 years for this to happen, but the 20 years of decline add up to a very sad story. And even though it took place 3,000 years ago, there are a number of important lessons for us today. The first of these is don't be desperate to hold on to anything. Don't be desperate to hold on to anything. Now, God has made us as people who have desires. I don't want you to think that that is necessarily wrong to want things, but it is easy for desires to get out of whack, for us to want something so badly that we'll cut corners to get it, whether it's a career goal or a relationship or a possession. And once we have what we want, we'll almost do anything to hold on to a dream, a dream house, a dream job, or the love of our lives. If we're honest, we can tell when desires have an unhealthy grip on us, when our thoughts are so dominated by the desire for something or to hold on to something that we know it has a grip on our hearts. Now, one of the solutions some have proposed, and this is particularly true of Eastern religious traditions, is that the solution is to eliminate desire. Now, on the surface, that sounds like it makes sense, but it's not the Christian way. The message of the Bible is not that our desires are too strong, but often that they are too weak, too weak for the things that truly satisfy. Psalm 37, verse 4, probably written by David, says this, Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. What this is saying is that when we put God at the center of our lives, when we trust him, he gives us what is best for us. It means we can be open-handed with what we have being willing to give it up if that's what God deems best. To follow God is to discover that he alone satisfies our deepest longings. It means knowing that his son Jesus can be trusted, that he's the smartest, wisest, most loving person who's ever lived, and he's generous with us. Saul, unfortunately, never discovered this. He was so desperate to hold on to power that he never learned to trust God and submit to his will. He never discovered that if he put delight in God, he would, in turn, Give him the desires of his heart. We must never be so desperate to hold on to anything that we can't trust God if he chooses to take it away. There's a second lesson we can learn from Saul's life, probably the most important lesson, and that is to be careful not to live in persistent sin. Be careful not to live in persistent sin. Now, let me explain because sin sometimes gets a, a bad rap. Um, it should, but uh, we get it confused. <laughs> That didn't come out right, did it? 
I grew up around some folks um, that I thought were way too uptight. Maybe you have experienced that, especially some of you who are maybe seeking and you know, haven't yet decided whether uh, the Christian faith is for you. You may be thinking of a whole lot of people you know that you think are uptight. Now, these weren't necessarily people in my family or even in the church that I attended, but they were people I ran into, and they had a lot of rules, a lot of which I didn't find in the Bible. Things like the stressing the evils of playing cards and um, shooting pool, uh, shopping on Sundays, wearing anything that, was, uh, um, that came into fashion after 1955, you know, those kinds of things. Um, and some people are really good at following rules. In fact, they love rules. It gives a sense of clarity. It helps them feel like they've done everything they're supposed to do, allows them to look down on others. And so some people are really good at it, but most of us aren't. And so we struggle with rules. We either try and fail and feel guilty, or we just, you know, hang it and we get rebellious and do whatever we can to get as close to or beyond the line as we can. Now, as I mentioned, uh, many of these rules aren't in the Bible, although we shouldn't be so quick to dismiss them because as silly and outdated as some of them might be, there often is wisdom in some of these rules, at least in the principles behind them, and our ancestors may have known a thing or two. But once you sift through the chaff, it turns out that the way of life that Jesus laid out for us is filled with incredible wisdom, which means that as bad a rap as the rules get, we need to be very careful about playing fast and loose with the things that God suggests. It turns out that trusting Jesus requires surrender, and surrender means an openness to change. We cannot encounter the living God without being challenged to change in some significant way. It might be pride or anger or greed or lust or envy or any uh, any other things the Bible calls sin. And what it tells us is that these things really aren't satisfying, but rather destructive. So when we submit to the will of God in our lives, we find the Holy Spirit leads and guides us into a better way toward humility, forgiveness, and generosity, and purity, and love. And in obedience, we find peace and grace and freedom to flourish and to become the people God has created us to be. But when we persist in sin, we cut ourselves off from God. The Bible does tell us that God is merciful, that he is forgiving, and he offers us second chances and third chances and so on. But his patience is not forever. There are those who consistently reject God's will for their lives and find that their hearts are so hardened that it's practically impossible to turn back to Him. So, before you get freaked out, is it, do you, does that mean you need to be worried about experiencing Saul's fate? Every once in a while, someone will come and ask me about something they've maybe heard about, this uh, idea of the unpardonable sin. Maybe you've heard about it, and you too have wondered what this is all about. I've known people who are so tied up in knots thinking that perhaps they've committed it and therefore are beyond hope. And the idea comes from Matthew chapter 12, 32, from the words of Jesus, when he said this puzzling statement. He said, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. Now, let me just kind of cut to the chase and tell you what this is about, and that is that Jesus is talking about rejecting the influence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. What we learn from other places in the New Testament is that the Spirit prompts and guides us, that if we're paying attention, we'll notice the gentle nudges the Spirit makes to help us to understand the way that's best for us. But we have a choice, and sometimes we can decide to ignore those. It's one thing to disobey God unintentionally, and if you're ignorant, you can be informed. But what's more serious is when we disobey with premeditation, 
if we are willingly blind and deaf, eventually what we're being told here is that nothing can be done. It's not as though God is unwilling to forgive, but that eventually we cut ourselves off from what might in fact lead us to repentance. In fact, in Matthew 12, Jesus emphasizes God's mercy. One translation says every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. But if we don't, the warning here is don't let your hearts become hard. A hard heart will one day become become incapable of repentance. So whenever anyone asks me about this unpardonable sin idea and these words of Jesus, I tell them, first of all, not to worry. As long as you're still living, repentance is possible. And if you're concerned about this, then it's clear to me that you haven't committed this sin because you can already feel and sense the Holy Spirit asking you, leading you to be reconciled to God. But the warning is also important. One of the realities of life is that we're stubborn people. Far too often we're set in our ways, and even if it's obvious that we are headed down the wrong path, we persist. Now, it may be incredibly irrational, but even though at times we're too ashamed, or we're not too ashamed to sin, we're too ashamed to repent. So we may continue to go ahead and go down our way, but we are proud, and we don't want to admit that we're wrong, that what we're doing is foolish. We're too stubborn to admit that we're wrong. Instead, we keep walking further and further away from God. So what we're being told here is not to hold on to even the little sins that God makes us aware of with the mistaken idea that they don't matter. They do. And we need to take sin seriously, not to be complacent. Consistently turning away from God has the danger of becoming a pattern in our lives. If we hold on too tightly to sin, we underestimate the corrosive effect that it can have on our hearts. Now, understand, though, that God loves you enough and he wants you to experience the best that he has for you. So sin, as attractive as it might be, has consequences, and yet we can understand that through Jesus Christ we can experience forgiveness and that our true joy comes in living in the way, that God, uh, the way of life God has for us. Now, the third lesson I want to talk about today um, is similar but more specific, and that is that sin hinders the effectiveness of our prayers. Sin hinders the effectiveness of our prayers. If you pray and pray and pray and pray and you're getting absolutely nowhere, it's a healthy thing to look at your life and ask whether there's some sin you're holding on to that you need to confess. It could be anger or bitterness or gossip or sexual sin or greed, but unconfessed sin cuts us off from God. Again, I don't want to scare you because all of us deal with temptations and all of us fail. The question is whether we care. We cannot find delight in the sin in our lives because when we sin, it grieves God. And if it grieves you as well, then it's good. That's a sign that your heart is still sensitive to God and that you want to change. In the Catholic baptismal rite, those being baptized are asked this question. Do you reject the glamour of evil and refuse to be mastered by sin? Do you reject the glamour of evil and refuse to be um, mastered by sin? And I know that language is a bit strange, but do you see what it's saying? For us to be truly repentant, we need to come to grips with the idea that sin promises something it cannot deliver. Sin may appear glamorous, but ultimately it's destructive. And when we hold on to the sin in our lives, it diminishes the effectiveness of our prayers. Jesus' younger brother, James, wrote in James 5.16, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So when we're connected to God, our prayers work. And when we're disconnected, it makes them less effective. One final lesson. 
And that is to ask God for guidance and then leave the future in his hands. Far too often, I think we're anxious to know the future. It's human nature to speculate, to study trends, to listen to forecasts and predictions. And there's no question that when we're facing a difficult decision, we need to seek God's will, have his input in what he would have us do. But God never promises to tell us the future. Studying this story convinces me that it's probably better to leave the future unknown, to seek God's guidance about what we should do, to reflect on what actions might honor him most, but don't ask God to tell you the future. Instead, leave it in his hands. When I left General Mills to go to work at a church, it was a big decision, although maybe not as big as some of you might think. I'd been headed that way for a while. Um, but I remember when I interviewed for a job, um, senior pastor of the church that I was talking to, um, I asked him a question. I said, uh, how's this going to work out? Because I kind of wanted to know the future. Um, would this move be a good thing? Was the risk I was taking worth it? And his answer surprised me. He said, I don't know. He said, it might and it might not. Who knows? You might not like us and we might not like you. Um, things like this are always risky. And what he was implying was that if I was willing to trust God with the future, I'd be okay. And he was right. My life hasn't exactly unfolded as I thought it would even at that time. Uh, how things have turned out have been different, but it's been fine. But I think we need to understand that asking for the future is not something God promises us, and it's probably not even wise for us. We need to learn to trust God in the moment. Now, whenever I talk about a negative example, a negative character example in the Bible, I always worry that you'll get the wrong impression, that you'll think that the essence of faith is following the straight and narrow way, and if we don't, we'll get crunched. Now, it would certainly be easy to get the impression from looking at what this story tells us about Saul uh, means that what we need to do is make sure we're doing the right thing and really be overly concerned with that. He's a mess, and the consequences of his life are tragic. But the stories of the Old Testament set up the message of the new, and that is that if you look back, you see from Adam on examples of people coloring outside the lines. And the impression that many get is that heaven is a reward for good behavior and how the result and punishment for bad. But it's an incomplete picture for what's going on. When Jesus came on the scene, he taught his followers that the failures of these Old Testament characters are our own failures as well. But even more, he taught them that God has not left us on our own, that instead he has sent Jesus to be the remedy for our problem. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we can find the joys of eternity, not in what we ourselves have done, but what in, Jesus, in what Jesus has done for us. For Christians, heaven is not a reward for good behavior. Instead, it is because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross that we're forgiven. It's in the resurrection that we find life. It's that simple. To live as a Christian means to obey what we know God asks of us, not in order to get some kind of reward, but out of gratitude for what God has already done for us. As we near the end of this very sad story of the life of Saul, we must be remember that the way that our story ends is up to us, that we can, as many have before us, choose to put our faith and trust in Jesus to find life in his name and obey not in order to win something, but out of gratitude for what God has already done for us. Let's pray. Father, Saul's story is sobering. For someone who started out so well, it's troubling to see how quickly he got off track. 
Father, we're troubled mostly because we too have followed his ways. So we confess the ways in which we've held on to sin in our lives. We ask that your Holy Spirit reveal to us any pattern of life that will continue to lead us away from you and that we will have the courage to confess our sins to you, to find forgiveness that you so freely offer through the death of your son Jesus on the cross. Thank you that we can trust you with the future and that what we do and that we do so knowing one thing for sure, and that is through a relationship with your son Jesus, our eternity with you is secure.